Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 16th, 2018, and it is Friday, 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 time for the Expert Council Q&A show. And I've got a good lineup for you today. We have thoughts on blockchain for payroll and human resources from cryptocurrency expert Ben Fitz. We have choosing an HF antenna for ham radio with Tim Glantz of Old, of Old Grouch Military Surplus. We have fencing for your pastured pork with Darby Simpson. We have what the loss of smell may mean for your health to Doc, from Doc Bones. We have more on local politics with Nicole Sauce. We have personality conflicts in the education system with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. We have dealing with anaerobic compost from Jeff Lawton. And we have the coming demographic shifts in America, demographic shifts in America and what they may mean for me, myself, and I, Jack Spierko. I ask you, I ask you honestly, where else can you find a single show with this type of variety of things that actually affect and impact your life? I know of nowhere else. So we'll be on to all of that in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and remind you guys you can help support this show in a really easy way. The way you do that is become a member of what is called the Members Support Brigade. This is a program I put together that works like this. You sign up for it for a monthly, uh, once every three months, once every six months, once every year, which is the most popular way, however you want to do it. You remain a member as long as you want. Cancel whenever you want to. But as long as you remain a member, you get access to a member's area. And that member's area is a lot of really cool content you'll get nowhere else, including like a couple hundred dollars worth of free ebooks you can download from day one. Every episode of TSP ever done in convenient zip files all the way back to episode one. And discounts to over 70 different companies. Now, this is the thing. You use those discounts. You buy a few things over the years. I'm sorry, over the year that you pick up using your discount stuff you probably would have bought anyway. You add up all your discounts at the end of the year, and for most people it turns out that they made money by being a member. That's how awesome the MSB is. You get to support the show you like, and I have worked out deals to get you your money back in return for your support. So check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And with that, let's jump right into it today with cryptocurrency expert Ben Fitz from CryptoGulch.com on thoughts on blockchain for payroll and human resources. Ben... Take it away, man. Hey, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is an expert counsel question for me, Ben Fitz from Crypto Gulch. This is a cryptocurrency question that comes from Jim in Spokane. And Jim asks, do you know if any cryptocurrency is working on a payroll system? He goes on to say he thinks it might be a good sector for one to target, and he hasn't heard of any doing that himself. Well, I hadn't necessarily heard of anything in the industry, but a quick Google search does reveal that there's quite a few, um, there's a lot of human resources projects moving to the blockchain, and that includes payroll. Um, I think if you look at any industry right now, there's a lot of industries, there's a lot of venture capital money and investment money going into blockchain technology, and so... You know, you can't, you probably, it's probably hard to pick an industry that there's not someone looking at applying blockchain to it. 
So I did a little research for you, Jim, and uh, found a few different companies that are working on uh, payroll solutions. One is called BitWage, BitWage, and their idea came from trying to pay people in different countries. Um, I just met some gentlemen that are based in Dallas, and they have a company that deals with international travel, and they're constantly trying to pay vendors in these other countries. And if they do credit cards, you know, it takes like something like 45 days or something on average for those payments to settle because they're dealing with different currencies and different banks and all of that stuff. And so uh, they're really looking at blockchain. And so BitWage might be a good solution for them, especially for paying their vendors overseas. Um, that is one of the intentions of the BitWage service. Then I also found Etch. Etch is a payroll solution on the blockchain. It is built upon the Ethereum platform as a decentralized app. And essentially, they provide a debit card that is connected to the blockchain so that when you pay one of your employees, it is like Etch tokens on the blockchain and um, they just go and they spend it with a debit card or they, they can withdraw money, you know, from the debit card like a bank account um, or through an ATM or anything like that. They can also give cards out to friends or family members that are in other countries. So that's another way that they're um, helping because, you know... I mean, here in Texas, you know, we have a lot of people who are immigrants and who uh, send funds back to family members, you know, whether that's Mexico or Central America, South America, whatever. Um, and this is a solution where they can actually have like a debit card that they send to their relative and they can, you know, just make purchases and it comes from their Etch account. So there are a couple of uh, applications out there. I haven't tried either of them. Um, I might go ahead and sign up for Etch because one of my own employees doesn't have a bank account. He's got like a green dot account is all he has. And um, so Etch might be a good solution for him. And it also allows us to practice what we preach and start using blockchain and cryptocurrency to pay employees. Um, so that's kind of a cool thing. I appreciate you asking the question, and, and there might be some other solutions out there. I encourage you guys to let me know if you find some solutions. We'll post links to these couple of different um, payroll solutions in today's show notes. And um, Etch also just had an ICO, by the way. Unfortunately, we're a little bit too late to get in on that ICO. They actually just distributed their tokens last month. So Etch might be an interesting one to take a look at. I don't know if the tokens are being traded anywhere yet, um, but that might be something for you to look at. It's Etch, E-T-C-H, and um, I think their website is just etch.work. And then Bitwage, I'm not sure what their website is, actually. Let's see. Bitwage is uh, just bitwage.com. Um, so again, both projects look really interesting and I'll post the links in the show notes. Hope you guys are having a great day. Hope the cryptocurrency downturn isn't hurting you too much. 
it looks like we're on the bounce back up. So I'm excited to see what the future has in store. Take care. Bye. Good stuff from Ben. I want to expand a little bit on my thoughts on the cryptocurrency market as a whole and where I think we're going from here while everything is really pushed down from its highs of a few months ago. Uh, major bloodletting, I guess, would be the way to describe it. Uh, again, I want to reiterate what I've always said. If you're investing in a currency, you are risking money, period. Okay. The next thing is you need to understand the utility of the token. If it's a pure trade, like I believe this has enough legs in it that it's going to go up in value and I'm going to dump it and make some money, and you want to take that gamble, which is what it is, that's fine. But for the, the, the currencies that you're investing in, that you intend to hold, that you intend to keep long-term as real stores of value. If you cannot define a couple things, and the main one is the utility of the currency, and specifically how that currency can do something that another cryptocurrency cannot do as well or better. Like, why do we need it? So there's no doubt blockchain is going to take over the world because blockchain is just a better solution than everything else we have. And it's becoming more and more simple to roll it out. One of the reasons I'm a fan of ARC is I believe within the next three to four months, if you want a blockchain, you'll be able to go to ARC and configure one uh, as, as easily as configuring a Facebook page, honestly, as long as you know what you want it to do, and click bang, and there will roll it out, and you'll have one. And I think that's, a, that's an amazing thing to be able to offer. That's why, that's why ARC is one of my you know, long-term hold currencies. But I do think that what we experienced with this ridiculous run-up in value is a point where a lot of people got involved that had no idea what they were doing, and they did run away like scalded cats. And I do not believe that, honestly, the majority of cryptocurrencies will still be here in two years. In two years' time, we will have the equivalent of the dot-com bust in cryptocurrency. We may have another huge run-up before that happens, but we're going to have a washing out of hundreds of these shitcoins. I'll give you some examples. So people today were asking about, well, what about payroll and what have you? Okay, fine. Listen, I, I, when I was in uh, New Hampshire, I got an update about one of the uh, YouTube channels I, I follow where they do like keynote-type speaking on cryptocurrency from all these different conferences. You get to hear all these different CEOs and CTOs and stuff like that, team members, talk about their currency. And they were on and on about this new coin called Telecoin. And Telecoin was going to use your phone number. That way everybody already has a wallet. And, you know, they're developing this and they got a six-month timeline to their beta and blah, 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 bullshit. Then Armani comes up to me and goes, hey, do you know what we're doing with uh, Bitcoin Cash and uh, TextCoin? Like, no. Well, it's just Bitcoin Cash, but you can just text somebody uh, Bitcoin Cash. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, let me send you. He sent me like $3 of Bitcoin Cash. I didn't even have a, an app set up. He just texted it to me. Boom, there it is. I had it. And I and I sent like a dollar of it to my buddy David. And, okay, this solution exists. It uses Bitcoin Cash. What the hell do we need Telecoin for? And if that solution exists, could it use any other currency, like let's say Bitcoin or let's say Litecoin? And a lot of these solutions that are coming with a token, is there a reason for that token to have value? Or is because when, when we have these point click blockchain environments where uh, goody goody liquor, let's say, place I've, I've bought a few bottles in my time, has a rewards uh, program. If they move that rewards program to a blockchain, 
Does that token need to go on an exchange? In fact, it wouldn't go on an exchange. It never would. It becomes an internal currency with no real value. It's subjective to the entity just like a any other points-based rewards program, like freaking SNH green stamps. And too many of these people are making the case, well, we're in the gaming industry. It's a $455 billion, quadrillion dollar business. We're in the medical Why do they need your token even if they like your blockchain? And what does that do to give that token value outside of that ecosystem? Or what about the ecosystem is so valuable that people will convert to that currency to use the ecosystem? If you cannot answer these questions in a very solid way, then there is almost a 100% chance you, if you are in the cryptocurrency world with a token, will be dead in two years. And even if you can answer that, only so many of those people are going to survive this. And it's two years in my mind, and I guarantee you on the outer reaches, it's three Till we will have the great shitcoin purge. And for all the fear about regulation, 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 do you know what regulation means? Regulation sucks, but in our world, things have to suck to be mainstream. When they put, if they put reasonable regulation around cryptocurrency platforms, then it will end up where the good surviving currencies will be in people's IRAs and 401ks. And then the early adopters who are holding on to the solid values are really going to be rewarded. And we'll have something about investing in, in cryptocurrency in your retirement account next week from John Pugliano, by the way. Anyway, just trying to be upfront about what I see coming here. Uh, next is a question for Tim Glantz on HF Antennas for Ham Radio. And thank God for Tim because I know nothing about Ham Radio. Hey, Jack, and everybody listening to TSP, Tim Glantz here, Old Grouch's Military Surplus, and ham radio operator W4WTF with an answer for Carl in Virginia about HF radio antennas. And HF, for those that are not hams, means the shortwave band, the, the band where you get the really long-range communications. And he's asking, what portable HF band antenna would I recommend for an emergency? Uh, Carl's been licensed for years but hasn't operated very much, and just getting back into it, seeing uh, how much it's been needed after the storms says, uh, I have a decent 100-watt HF, VHF, UHF transceiver generator and battery bank and will be getting a wind link modem soon. What type of antenna would you recommend for a kit? I'd rather not be stringing 100 feet of wire in trees that may or may not be there after a storm. It needs to be able to handle the 100-watt output of my radio and fit in a large Pelican case. I'm thinking one of the tripod-mounted vertical or loop antennas might fit the bill. love to hear your thoughts. Uh, well, Carl, uh, you'd rather not be stringing the wire but let me tell you any simple wire antenna is going to way outperform any of your portable tripod mounted antennas every single time um on hf antennas it's long wavelength uh radio frequency and there is just no substitute for large antennas tiny antennas on hf are a huge compromise if you really want to go with something small and tripod mounted i would look at something like the outbacker antenna uh, my experience is the one I've had the best luck with in a compact one. Loops, the portable loops, I've never had much luck with. Uh, they seem to be good receiving antennas. They're not good transmitting antennas in my, in my experience. Now, one thing you didn't mention, uh, in your equipment is an antenna tuner. Uh, if you don't have one, get a nice automatic antenna tuner, uh, either an SGC or an LDG or the two that, that I recommend. Uh, that's going to be a must here. And in all honesty, uh, I would go ahead and string a nice dipole or loop or whatever antenna will fit uh, the situation at your home now. 
to be operating on on your daily basis as you practice with this stuff and, and get the feel of it. And then have some other backup wire antennas ready to go in the event of an emergency. Um, it doesn't have to be fancy. You can do almost anything on an emergency wire antenna uh, and get it up there, and it will work better than even your best tripod-mounted antennas will, in my experience. Um, some simple ones I've used in the past. Uh, one simple, well, you know, a simple dipole, you can fold it up, put it up in the trees. Uh, I use a wrist rocket slingshot with a heavy fishing weight and a Zebco 202 fishing reel attached to it to shoot fishing line up in the tr trees, and then I use that to pull up uh, my parachute cord that holds my antenna up, and I can I can get a wire up in a tree in no time with that. Uh, you know, you can have a regular dipole that's just regular wire folded up. I really recommend the best wire in the world to make these from is old military uh, field telephone wire. I've got it. Uh, number one, it's cheaper. I sell it, or you can get it from other sources. It's cheaper than any other kind of wire you're going to buy. And number two, anybody that's ever messed with this stuff, it lasts forever. It's not going to rip. It's not going to tear. It is durable. Um, you can make a regular dipole out of that, fold it up, and put it in the case. It takes up no room. Uh, I've made what they call the slinky dipole, and just like it sounds, instead of wire, you've got two metal slinkies. Then those, you know, it compacts down to the size of two slinkies with some coax, and they extend and have their natural spring action. Works great with a tuner. Um, one of the things the military always used for a long time, and they still do, is they have uh, an antenna, and it's simply a dipole antenna, and then the wires are rolled up on fly fishing reels. Get all two cheap of the cheapest fly fishing reels you can, and roll the wire up on them, and then you unroll it to the length you need, and the end stays rolled up in there, and it's kind of like loading coils on the end, and you hoist it up into the trees. And in an emergency situation, you're not going to really need to get it. Usually, you're not wanting to talk thousands of miles. You're wanting to talk hundreds. And so for that purpose, you want what's called an MVIS antenna that is fairly low to the ground on a wire antenna. So don't think you've got to get this all the way up in the trees. Uh, you know, an, even an in-fed random wire antenna fed with a tuner will be better than uh, your uh, portable antenna. One wire thrown up in the tree with fed to the tuner, fed against a counterpoise that's even laid on the ground uh, can work better. I've got a friend who works uh, what they call summits on the air where they backpack up in the mountaintops, different ones, and get different credit for going up there, and it's all battery-powered and stuff, and it's a perfect example of this. And one of his tricks is he has a uh, fishing pole he carries. Well, it's the stubble one, just enough to have one eyelet, and it's rolled up with really fine magnet wire with a weight on the end. Uh, you can buy this from electronic supply houses, and it's it's basically really thin copper wire, and it's the same size as you end up with, uh, you know, some fishing line. And he tosses that weight up into the tree and then hooks into it uh, on his end, got a little clamp hooked to uh, his thing, and he's got a counterpoise he lays out, and that is his basically a kind of a long wire vertical antenna up into the tree above him. And that thin little wire, when he's done, he just breaks it off and forgets it, you know, thin little copper, it's going to disintegrate and be gone in no time. Uh, and he can move on, and he's got enough wire in that fishing reel and that old spinning reel there to probably do it 50 times. Uh, any kind of wire you can get up into, into the air is going to be better, and I really would encourage you to look at those kind of solutions because they're going to work better than any kind of uh, tripod mounting antenna you can, you can get. And especially, even your better tripod-mounted ones are not going to fit in a large Pelican case, unless you're talking like footlocker-sized Pelican case. And your wire antennas can fit in a much smaller package to be portable. 
So I hope that helps, and I hope it gets you thinking, and I hope you'll really reconsider your, your dislike for the wire antennas because they really perform a whole lot better in all these situations for you. Thanks for the question, and Jack, thanks for the great podcast, and as always, hope everybody has a great day. All right, next up I have a question for full-time farmer Darby Simpson from Simpson Family Farms on fencing for pastured pork. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of the Grass-Fed Life podcast calling in to answer another question this week for the TSP Expert Council. This week I've got a question from Russell all the way up in Canada. Uh, Russell is wanting to know about pasturing hogs, and he's wondering how much fencing he's going to need to uh, kind of get this going. Um, he's got uh, you know plenty of acreage on his farm there with trees, and he mentions that you know in the past couple of years he's he's been raising two pigs a year, but he's been doing it more conventionally in a pen, and he really wants to get away from that. So his question is, what does he need, uh, Russell? What I would normally tell somebody to do uh, would be to just get like seven sections of the premier portable pig fence. They come in uh, 50 or 100 foot sections. I'd say get seven sections of the 100 foot fence and maybe a 50 footer just in case. It's always nice to have a little bit extra. Um, and that way you can set up four sections of fence. Uh, put your pigs in roughly a quarter acre area. Then off of any side, you can set up the other three sections, open the then middle piece of fence up, create a gate, rotate the hogs, uh, you know, put the fence back together, take the other three sections down, leapfrog, you know, wash, rinse, repeat, and just keep moving the pigs around. Um, I think particularly when you're only raising five hogs and, uh, you know, once you've trained them to electric fence inside of a fixed area, Uh, you know, that's a really great way to manage pigs out in the woods. And then, you know, having that extra 50-foot section is always nice because things don't always line up perfectly in the woods. You can't make a perfect box that's 100 by 100 feet every time you go to set this up because of trees and shrubs and bushes and briars and everything else. But the big curveball you threw me here was that bears – are a concern. And frankly, that's not anything I've ever had to deal with. We do have a few bears in southern Indiana, but I don't have any bears where I'm at. The The biggest predators I have are a coyote and a bobcat. Uh, but, you know, as, as far as a pig is concerned, that's really getting to be too big of a target once, you know, they're 150 pounds or so. Uh, however, a bear is a totally totally different issue and I think you're going to need something a bit more strenuous to uh, you know keep out bears so you could do a couple of things I've actually built high tensile fence in the woods and I think you know if you've got these five pigs if you could fence off without having seen your property a couple of acres with high tensile fence um, and then you could rotate the hogs internally using either the portable netting you could actually once you get them trained to electric they're 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 fairly easy to manage with uh portable reels or you could just subdivide you know this two acre area uh into to four or six permanent paddocks if you wanted to using some t-posts um you can build some internal fence very easily using a product uh from kenco fence company called wedge lock which i haven't personally used yet Uh, but I've talked with several people 
they have gone through our, our Farm Business Essentials course, and they all love that product. I'm actually going to be trying it on my farm this summer. Uh, so you could use it to subdivide. Uh, you could actually use that to build this uh, external permanent fence if, if you wanted to. But you could look at using high tensile fence. I've done that in the woods successfully. I think if you build it tall enough and you electrify it hot enough, it'll keep bears out. The other thing you could look at using, again, is another product I've not used, but I'm looking at potentially using it this year. Uh, and I'm sure other places carry it, but Power Flex Fence out of Missouri um, they have got a high tensile woven wire fence that you can electrify or not electrify. Uh, and it's great at keeping pigs in. And I, I think again, if you were to electrify it or maybe put a hot wire, you know, um, on either side of it to, you know, keep the pigs in and keep bears out, that could be a potentially good fencing solution for you. Um, I think the main thing is you fence a couple of acres and you rotate the pigs. That's, that's the big thing. I think in your situation, the, the portable stuff, uh, for external protection isn't going to work. Uh, you've just got too much going on there. So, you know, this way you can get something permanent built and, and start rotating them around. And honestly, all they need, uh, particularly if we're talking about the warmer months, and that's when I would tell you to raise them. That's when I tell anybody to start pigs. Work with nature. If you start pigs in May, uh, you can have them done by October. Now, when I say start, I'm saying start with some 50 to 75-pound weaned pigs. You can have those guys finished by October. All they really need is a decent shelter, something up off the ground that will help them stay dry, put a little straw in it, uh, you could, you know, move that around or maybe you could put it strategically in the middle of this fixed area and, and set up kind of a wagon wheel where they can go, uh, you know, uh, in and out of the house, regardless of which paddock they're getting. Uh, they, they need a drinker, right. And, and a bulk feeder that you can move around. Uh, you can move the drinker around and you're set, you're ready to go, man. That's, uh, that's really all you need. So, um, I, I think you just watch the ground and let it recover and you rotate as needed. And early on, you know, you might give them, um, a quarter of an acre or half of an acre. And that might last a few weeks when they're really little, but by the time they're big and getting close to being done and graduating to freezer camp, um, you know, that, uh, quarter acre, half acre paddock might only last them a week or so, maybe a week and a half. It really just depends on what you got growing in your woods, what time of year it is. But, um, that would be my advice to start there and kind of see how that goes. And, uh, you know, follow up with me. Let me know how that works. And I'm really curious to know what you use to uh, make bears not so much of a concern up there in Canada. So, Russell, I hope you found that helpful. That's what I got for you. Uh, for the rest of you, if you find this stuff interesting, check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast. You can go to our new home at grassfedlife.co. Again, that's grassfedlife.co. Um, we talk about this kind of stuff every week. And in the past month, we've had a couple of guys on you may have heard of, Joel Salatin, Greg Judy. Um, I've been on there. We've also got some new farmers on the show who are going through growing pains in their, you know, their second or third year of farming. So a pretty wide range of stuff that's pretty, uh, pretty broad. We cover a lot of different topics, including not just how to raise the animals, 
but how to market them profitably, uh, where you sell, how you get started, how you put together spreadsheets, uh, how you make a really nice income from a regenerative farm. So if you find that interesting, check out the podcast. If you want to go deeper, check out the Farm Business Essentials online course. This is a workshop that my good friend Diego and Footer and I have been running for the past couple of years. We've put over 100 people through it in person. We've tweaked it, modified it, added to it, and we've now put it online. Uh, so you don't have to travel to Indiana to take this you know, workshop anymore. You can take it online, and you can take it at your own pace. Uh, and until March 20th, we've got an early bird discount going on. You save 200 bucks off the price of the course. It's yours. There's no subscription fees, no additional fees in the future, no ongoing costs or expenses. It's yours. But after March 20th, the price is going to go up, and it's going to stay up there. It will not come back down. It will not go on sale. So if you're interested in farming for profit, part-time or full-time, Go out, check out that course at farmbusinessessentials.com. You can watch an hour's worth of videos from the course for free. Read the testimonials on the website. Don't take my word for it. See what you think. As always, everyone, thanks for sending in the questions. Keep them coming. Have a great weekend and take care. Great advice from Darby. I will tell you one thing that I heard Joel Salatin say that's made a lot of sense to me as I've even done just some small-scale paddock rotation and farming. He's always said, put in temporary fencing, even if you think you want a permanent fence. If you leave that temporary fencing in for two years and you're still happy with where it is, then put in your permanent fence and move that temporary fence somewhere else. Um, I, I don't know that that is always the right thing, but I think it is always the starting place and then before you put in a permanent fence right away, you should have to talk yourself out of that. Uh, I think that is a good mentality to go into fencing with, especially when it comes to farming. Uh, next up, I have a question for Doc Bones on the loss of the sense of smell. Does that mean you're headed for an early grave or that maybe you just have a, a growth in your nose holes? Uh, it can actually mean a lot of different things. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the top survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Also, Block Talk Radio's Survival Medicine Hour and co-author of the award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Sean, who writes, Question for Doc Bones. What causes and how much is there to worry about if you're losing your sense of smell? The last few years, I've noticed my sense of smell collapsing, a fraction of what it should be. I did a Google search, and the first result said, it means you are shortly going to die. Wow, I am not embellishing it. It was that direct. Of course, I don't take such a Google result totally serious, but is there a cause to this, and should I be concerned? Some background, I have awful hay fever, according to my allergist at the time. I'm in the top 0.5% of the population in terms of reactivity meaning a lifetime, I'm age 48, of stuffed noses, sneezing, and popping antihistamines could have taken its toll. I also have neurofibromatosis that, while not a handicap, has messed with my body in various ways. Thanks in advance, Sean in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. P.S. Please tell Nurse Amy I think she missed her calling as she has one of the most pleasant and uplifting radio personalities I have ever heard.
Why, thank you very much. Oh, now she comes on. <laughs> I'm just sitting <clears throat> quiet as a mouse, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, what you're talking about is referred to as an anosmia, the loss of the sense of smell. You might consider a sense of smell not to be that important, but without it, it's hard to detect things like gas leaks, a fire, or a spoiled food, all things that you might want to be able to detect, right? Anosmia might be temporary, but it might be permanent and could be, interestingly enough, in only one nostril or even both. This is something actually that very few doctors test. It can be caused by anything from A to Z, from allergies to a zinc deficiency. It can also be caused by inflammation, blockage of nasal passages, infections like meningitis or syphilis, nasal polyps, or even a brain tumor. Overuse of certain nasal sprays are another reason that your sense of smell might be impaired. Anosmia is different from things like hyposmia, which is a decreased sense of smell, which is what you might actually have, or hyperosmia, a very sensitive sense of smell, like what you might experience when you're pregnant. Not you personally, Sean. <laughs> then there's... Oh, now she's laughing. <laughs> that was funny, then. <laughs> then there's phantosmia, smelling something that isn't there, like burnt toast. Of course, in normal times, it's important to be checked out to rule out any disease process, and that's what you should do, Sean. Although things like brain cancer can exist, it is very rare without a lot of other symptoms going on there. Though anosmia caused by brain damage has no cure, inflammatory changes from allergies may be treated with oral steroids like prednisone, followed by a long-term steroid nasal spray. It's important to know, however, that the treatment is a temporary fix and may have to be repeated on and off. Drainage of the nasal mucosa with a neti pot might be helpful. In some cases, you might give that a shot. Although very early in development, there are things that are coming up. Gene therapy, G-E-N-E, gene therapy, has restored a sense of smell in mice that were born with anosmia when caused by a condition which may also occur in humans called ciliopathy, a genetic condition which affects the little projections we have called cilia in our bodies that normally enables us to detect airborne chemicals. As for neurofibromatosis, a condition caused genetically where tumors form in nervous tissue, you know what, I would think that tiny masses might have damaged your olfactory nerve, the nerve that is associated with the sense of smell. I'm not sure myself how this is confirmed, but I'll tell you, it's something to bring up to your doctor. I really believe that. This is Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. And thanks for checking out our Survival Medicine Hour podcast, our Twitter at Prepper Show, and our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Oh, hey, <laughs> do your family a big favor by getting more medically prepared with kits and supplies from this young lady's entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off anything in our store. Okay, next up I have a question for Nicole Sauce on local politics. Actually, a, a follow-up segment to uh, kind of a two-parter that Nicole broke in half for us. Nicole, take it away. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here for the Expert Council, handling part two of Michael's question about getting involved locally, politically speaking. In our last segment, we talked about just how to develop relationships in your local area, learning about how the political system works, and writing everything down, the who influences what, where, who's responsible for what. 
That's the important first step. Okay, so today we're going to talk about step two, getting involved. And the way I see getting involved in local communities, well, wait, first we'll talk about why. Why would you want to get involved in local politics? Well, um, if you ask me, why would you want to get involved in politics at all? It's a headache. It's horrible. If you get elected, it sucks to be elected. But, you know, okay, so all that jadedness aside, getting involved locally speaking is the one place where you might actually be able to make a change that makes a difference. And more importantly, some of the biggest governmental abuses I have ever seen in my whole entire life have been at the local level. Start with your neighborhood associations, go to your cities and your towns, and then go to your counties. Those are the people really screwing things up for everybody else. And no... That's not like the cop who like shoots the dogs, you know, dead who are at the wrong house sort of scale bad. But there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on at the local level. And if you're willing to get involved and be the person or the voice of reason, you can help reduce that. And that's kind of awesome. So I have to say this. I, I have been involved in public policy for 14 years. We've had some great wins. And I feel like for every win I've had, about four losses have happened. So I feel like it's like one step forward, three steps back every time I work on a political issue. Because when you win in one area, they've been busy kicking your butt in another area. And so the more of you willing to get involved in your local politics, the better off we all are, right? Because voices of reason are sadly missing. If you look at the news today and just watch like the crap they're talking about, I wish I could cue up that. Hold on a second. So yeah, the day Jack queued that one up, I was laughing my butt off because he's right. And that is the way it like when you start listening to the goat circus that happens politically speaking and you have that song in the back of your head, you realize you basically can't take anybody seriously. Well, okay. So I don't want to make you jaded. Let's go back to local politics. Um, so we now know why to get involved because you can actually make a difference for somebody, a real person who really might need you to make a difference for them. I don't know, like maybe in an eminent domain conversation where the county is trying to take property to make their county offices and the person doesn't want to give it up. And there are like a hundred thousand other places they could go that they could just freaking buy. Uh, that happened in my county and they took it anyway. And then they didn't use it. They uh, pressured some other poor businessman into selling his complex to them for less money because they threatened them in a domain. But whatever abuses don't happen at the county level. Nicole's on a bit of a rant today. Sorry. Uh, but Michael, you need to decide what your role is. Are you going to be a politician or are you going to be an influencer? If you're going to be a politician, decide which role is the right role for you. If you can go issue specific, you will be more specific. You will be more successful. If your issue is going to be like, I am going to fix zoning or I am going to fix raw milk or I am going to fix education, like any of those things. If you focus on the issue, I feel like it's much easier to develop a message and defend that message and not have a lot of um, creeping crap come in. By creeping crap, I mean the people who try to trade favors to you for 
results that they want that may not be what you want, but then they like say, well, if you give us this result, we'll give you that result over there. Uh, yeah. So issue specific is great. If you can't do that and it's just like, Hey, I need to become, you know, a county commissioner or something. What you need to do is develop a platform, which with three things on it, this formula works really well. If you listen to any politician, they usually, the successful ones often have three talking points. Why? Because the human brain can process three things. And then once you put four or five or six, we start getting confused. So you find your three talking points. You stick to your three. George Bush did a really good job of this. You may not like him, whatever he actually did. If you watch him like land back on his three points, he always lands back on his three points. He did get elected president. So, you know, you got to give him uh, something there. So find your three things, learn how to talk about them, learn how to talk about them in emotional terms that resonate with people. Like I want to fix the education system because it will help kids like talk about the kids, get comfortable talking about the kids on that one. Or, or, you know, if you're fighting, I don't know, the raw milk issue, talk about uh, what that means to families who have been farmers for many years and been eating the milk from their cows. And now it's illegal. Like just find those stories build the stories in and have a really clear idea of what success looks like. If you're going to be elected, be able to talk about the pain that you're fixing and the success, like what that looks like. And then if you do get elected, push towards that. And this may mean that you are just a one-term pony. I don't know. A lot of people who stick to their guns are a one-term pony. My grandmother was elected as a Catholic to the House of Representatives in Utah, where it is mostly Mormon. And she had one term because she wouldn't compromise with anybody on any of her relatively conservative things. And um, it didn't last because she wasn't willing to compromise. At the same time, she got some stuff done during that term. So that's one way to go. Another way to go, though, is to choose to be an influencer. And I can tell you this. I'm personally more more comfortable as an influencer, even though I actively try to recruit people to come to my county and sit on the county commission. I would love to have four freedom-oriented county commissioners in my county who will push back on stuff the state is, is demanding. The biggest one for me is the land use zoning issue right now in our area because that is how we tell people what they are are and are not allowed to build on the land they bought with their own money, right? So that's just the camel's nose under the tent of controlling everything, in my opinion. So if you're going to be an influencer, what you need to do is figure out how to make politicians experience pain if they don't do the right thing. And that can be in the form of calling them out publicly it can be phone calls to their office. It can be a lot of email. Email's not, not as effective as a phone call, by the way, by the way, to a politician. It could be that they lose on some other issue, but you know, remember, politicians are mostly motivated by getting reelected because once they get elected, they get a salary and now their whole focus is getting reelected so they can keep the salary. So your power as an influencer is I will get you fired. I will get you fired by you not getting elected because I'm going to put all of my people who love me and we've like got this whole agenda. We're going to put them behind your, your competition in the next election. You're going to be screwed. Well, that's actually a pretty good argument for a politician. So just remember that if you're going to be an influencer, again, know what your focus is and stick to your focus because people will try to run you off your focus And then use that influence to get done what you want to get done. And once that one thing is done, then you can go back and figure out what your next thing is. 
that's pretty much all I have to say on how to get involved locally. It's really about developing the relationships. And I mean, genuinely, not fakely developing relationships. You need to be trustworthy. And um, as Jack would say, say what you do, do what you say, right? And if you do just that, people, even if they don't agree with you, you'll be amazed. They'll be like, I'm behind you because you didn't lie to me like every other dummy in this whole county political situation, right? People don't like corruption. You can pull open record requests and find corruption. It's amazing what is going on the local level. If you've dug into your budget, you'll see that too, as we discussed in the last one. And just get out there and make the one change. And when the one change is done, that's when you go on to the next change. And and it it's amazing how much you can do. Just I mean, like I'm amazed at what I've been able to do in my county as somebody who's not from here, am I? I am not from here and people surprisingly will look to me for my opinion. And I'm like, I don't know, I didn't grow up here. But it is what it is, right? Okay. So for the expert counsel, this has been Nicole Sauce. If you want to know more about me, check out my podcast at livingfreeintennessee.com and Jack. Hope you're having a great month. It sounds like you've had a doozy of the year. Make it a great week, everybody. She's absolutely right. And she got into kind of moving through the middle to the middle second third to the second half of that. And you're messaging and find examples and tell stories and all. Absolutely right. And do you know what I heard during the whole damn thing? Yeah, I mean, it's because it's the pattern recognition. It, it is, it, of course it works. It's the same thing when you're watching, uh, you know, a presidential campaign speech and they're like, and it's like, you know, I am here to run for president. Uh, but we'll, we'll save the world and you'll get tired of winning. And, blah. and it's like Tom Smith, who's back there in the back. Stand up, Tom. Tom works really hard and his medicine costs more than the same medicine he buys for his dog. And I mean, it's the same shit. Over and over and over, but somebody's got to do it. And I think that, you know, kind of what I missed on her first segment, and it kind of hit me today in the beginning of this one, her her idea of, well, if you want to see what your local political landscape is like, the first thing you have to do is map it. Like, who is in local government, and what do they do, and how do they do it, and what power do they have? I'll tell you what. You want to turn somebody into an anarchist? Have them do that little exercise. Because you start to realize, that, why do we need all these people involved in this many places in so many people's lives? Like, you know, recently, I pointed out on Facebook the following. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Marco Rubio from uh, Florida, senator from Florida, is introducing a bill to allow, <laughs> this, to allow, to permit the entire country to just stay on daylight savings time all the time. Do you realize the government has so much power they screw around with time? And and they actually think what they do really does do something? The only reason that daylight savings time or the lack thereof has any apparent reality to anybody is that it changes. If you just stuck to normal time or stuck to daylight savings time, which I don't like, and I'll get to why in a second... Um, then people would just adapt to the reality of when the sun comes up and when the sun comes down, and locally people would adjust things like when stores open and when people got off work, etc., based on that. But no. And what, what I think the government has done is they've gotten to a point where they believe they have so much power, and she's right, the smaller the government body, the more potential for abuse. 
Not the smaller the number of people in the body, the smaller the body. Because the smaller body of government, the local government, already has all the laws from the county, the state, and the federal level, plus code and this and that and everything else, and then they still want to put more restriction on They never fight for freedom and liberty. All they do is put more restriction on. And she's right. The main reason you would run for government at the local level is so when they want to you know, institute uh, eminent domain to take away somebody's shit, you could be a voice of dissent that actually has a voice. That's, that's the good reason, to prevent them from doing shit. But I believe that the government has gotten to the point where they think they could probably write a law that said high tide will last one hour longer so fishing will be better. And they would expect the damn tide to stay in for an extra hour. Because that's what daylight savings time is. It's in the words of an old Indian. You cut the bottom off the blanket, you sewed it on the top of the blanket, and you expect it to get a longer day. This is the nonsense of government. If you want to change people's opinion about government, get them to, to start out at the most local level and find out who their councilman is, how many councilmen are they, what do they do. You know, who's the county commission? All that. Like, all the way up to the top of the county. How many people get to make decisions for them about how they live their lives? I think the sheer number alone will show you the problem that we have. And when we get to my segment, you're going to hear how all of this can be so much worse today. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert council. Hey, Jack and TSB community. I'd like to start off by giving a shout-out to the TSP Zello channel. So on Tuesday nights, we have our regular TSP meetups here at our house, and one of our members, Melissa, uh, turned us all on to the TSP Zello channel. And uh, I want to say that we were warmly welcomed. I especially like to give a shout-out to PA Prepper, who was the admin who walked us through that process. It was easy-peasy, and i got to tell you, it's a great place to meet other like-minded people, Uh, other members of our tribe, and so I would highly recommend everybody join the Zello channel. So today's question is actually was a, a note, a comment from a previous episode, and it was from Nick in Mongolia. If you remember, we, uh, we've talked with Mick, Nick before. And here's his, his question. After a year of homeschooling, my wife insisted we put our son in the local public school here. While not as much of a nightmare as some of the anecdotes, it still leaves much to be desired. There are some positives. They have a much more advanced math program than equivalent grades in the States, and his time at school is quickly improving our son's Mongolian language skills. The need for improvement in the latter was the primary reason for the decision, as the lessons between him and his mother didn't work out so well. Perhaps dealing with personality conflicts during homeschooling is a good question for Mike and Sue. And, of course, there are the negatives, the biggest being the presence of bullies at the school. Some things don't change no matter where you are, I suppose. Even with some of the friends he's made, our son certainly said he prefers homeschooling. Okay, well, I just want to touch briefly on the math level thing, because as a homeschooler, you don't have to worry about curriculums and math levels, because you get to be wherever your kid needs to be. And that's one of the beauties of homeschooling, is having that solid choice to make. Yeah, so advanced math, you can make it as advanced as you need it to be for your child. Right. So I do want to say that you know all parents homeschool. It's just that some spend more time at it than others. And, Nick, one of the things I would say is that, that you and your wife will need to be in agreement. You talk about that perhaps next year that you would homeschool again. And so I'd say that as parents, you have to be uh, of one mind and one accord. So you need to sit down 
and look at that and come up with an agreement. I would also recommend there's a book, Five Love Languages, if you haven't heard about it. It's it's easily available. It's easy to look up. Um, and that, for us, has been very important. Also going to recommend, again, family meetings. And there's and, questions in the Five Love Languages that you can talk about things. And you can work through yeah. and determine which is your which is your strongest love language. And right. that's important. And what your needs are. Yes. And, again, a reminder to put your spouse first. So what I'm hearing is you want to homeschool. And your son wants to homeschool, and your wife was insisting that he go to the public school there in Mongolia. So there are three people in this, and I'm using air quotes here, in this conflict. So intrinsically, it's not a bad thing to have a conflict. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to find a solution, and it's an opportunity for clarity. So one of the questions I would ask is, what do you need to do to help your wife for her to be able to enjoy homeschooling. Yeah, and enjoying it's really important because if you want to live like you want your kid and you want them to feel wanted, enjoying that process is going to be really important. So sometimes you have to change your mindset, though, because your kid's with you all the time and you're going to encourage, instruct, and correct your kid. And a lot of us focus too much on the correct and then we go to the instruct and then we encourage. And it really goes... Encourage first, spend a lot more time encouraging versus instructing. And it's like when your kid's learning how to walk and they fall down. And I've never heard anybody say, you stupid baby, get up. What are you thinking? You know how to do this. But when your kid's eight or nine and they fail the math test, you so many times, I know I have in the past, said, what? How could you have failed this math test? We've done this. We've spent weeks on this. You know how to do this. And instead of saying, hey, it's all right, we're just going to go over these lessons again, and you're going to take this math test again, and we're going to keep doing that till you get that mastery learning down. And it's such a, I don't know how we forget that, between the toddler and the 10-year-old. Yeah, a lot of time it's the parental response, so it's the parent's response, not the kid's response. Yeah, and so the kid's feeling stupid because you just put them down for something that's very normal to not quite understand, a math concept. So you're not your kid's dictator, and you're not their friend. It's, those are other important things to remember, that you know the dictator mom is like, you must do this at this time and this way and turn all your stuff into me on time. And then the friend mom is like, hey, we're just going to hang out and have fun. You're not either of those. You're the parent. You're the parent. So act like the responsible parent who's developing really good patterns for your homeschool. And I would say that the parent is more like, a use this example, an owner versus a hired hand. Yeah. So... You are more concerned about your child and you care more about your child than a teacher that they're going to have for a single year or maybe two years. Because the teacher may say that they love all their children in their classroom. And they treat them like their own. But in the end of the evening, they go home to their family. And at the end of the year, the students move on and the teacher gets the next group of students. Uh, so... I would say that as the owner of my children, I care more, no different than an owner of a business cares much more about the details of his business than perhaps his hired hands. And sometimes parents have a conflict with kids because they're not seeing what the children are doing as age-appropriate behavior. Right. Right. So uh, one of the things that I would recommend is there's a, a book, Piaget's Stages of Development. 
and you can research that and other, there's other theories out there, but it'll give you great ideas about where your child is developmentally. And it's just to bring back, back to the front of your mind. And so researching that, learning your kids' different stages of development as they become teenagers, especially important, because there's a lot more conflict that happens. So when they're younger, if you're in the habit of learning why they're doing what they're doing and how you can be a better parent for that stage. It's really important. Yeah, and it's not if there's going to be conflicts. It's when they're going to be conflicts. Yes. Because there will be. <laughs> and I think, you know, Jack had a situation the other week with his truck and his uh, farmhand, and I think Jackie did an excellent job with that. And I do think there's a difference between, quote-unquote, punishment and consequences. And so Jack did a great job with his hand basically saying, I told you it was a diesel truck. You need to be aware of that when you went to put the fuel into it and you put gasoline in a diesel truck and it costs X number of dollars to be repaired. And so there's a consequence. And part of that is you're going to have to work off part of that money or all of that money because it's a con- we, we're going to face consequences in our decisions through our entire life. And so you start with the consequences very early. When you spill something, you clean it up. As soon as they're able to do that for themselves, to clean up after themselves and to fix things that they've broken or pushed, then you get them to do that. So back to the personality conflict thing. So a conflict is a serious, prolonged disagreement. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a state of opposition, right? Yeah. Between different ideas or different interests. Right. right. So this is an adult responsibility to solve. And one of the really important things to us is, Having honest self-dialogue. I mean, sometimes people will hear, my, hear Michael and I talking and they're like, man, you guys sound so mean. But really, we're just being honest with each other about, you know, that's what you said. I don't think that's what you mean. What did you actually mean? So there's this really good book called um, People of the Lie by F. Scott Peck. And it just it just talks about the... We, how we lie to ourselves. And so the, the less you do that, the more honest you are with yourself, the easier it is then to go on and deal with other conflicts. Yeah, and to discover the, the deeper reasons for those conflicts. Right? right. Or that particular conflict, there might be a deeper reason than what's on the surface. Yeah, I mean, when I was choosing to be depressed years and years ago, like 25 years ago, and somebody said, just make your bed. And I, you know, I hear that Jordan Peterson guy saying, you know, make your bed. And, I heard that 25 years ago, I know it's weird because I was like 30 and I wasn't making my own bed, but when I started doing that, it really started snowballing into me doing more and more better things. So sometimes it's a really super simple solution, and sometimes you do have to dig deeper. So if all you want um, to homeschool, and it's the only area of conflict that you're having, if your kid's in school and you guys are doing great and there's none of this conflict in your life, then, you know, homeschooling might be the conflict. And so in your homeschool, if you start developing patterns, just like permaculture, you develop a daily pattern and a weekly pattern, that's really super comforting for kids. And I first heard about that when my mom was teaching preschoolers with disabilities, and it really resonated with me that... I could develop these patterns, and of course, I started out very strict. It was from 8 to 8.30, we're doing math, and then anything that's left over is homework. And we've moved, as we've gotten involved in permaculture, we've moved into a really much more natural pattern of the day where we finish the task before we go on. Yeah, there's a pattern, but not necessarily a timeline. Yeah, so Joel Salatin has some, interestingly enough, has some really good parenting advice in some of the talks that he has on YouTube that I really have loved. So 
This is Michael and Sue Laprise. We want to remind you that family conflicts are normal things that can become serious if not addressed early, which is why we highly recommend regular family meetings. Nick, I hope this was helpful. Again, this is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. Back to you, Jack. Great advice there. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I do kind of like that point. They brought up that I had in the past said things like, you know, we don't teach children how to walk by when a baby takes his first couple steps saying, yes, yeah, stupid baby, you did it wrong, just stay down. We, we encourage. And I think that applies to a lot of things in life. Next up, I have a question for Jeff Lawton on dealing with an old pile of compost that's gone anaerobic. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And we have a question here from someone who has a problem where large amounts of composted chicken manure has been piled up on a pasture, leaving an area, uh, two areas, about 15 feet in diameter, where they think a lot of nitrogen is built up. And um, there's probably so much uh, manure that's composted it's a rough terminology it may have been composted or partly decomposed but it's been high enough that the weight of the pile has caused it to go anaerobic and it's caused dead spots and they're assuming there's a big build-up of nitrogen that's killed any vegetation and nothing grows there well i'd say what you have is very large build-up of anaerobic organisms in the soil and they need to be relieved um and they're asking how I would recommend you expedite this um, with some sort of process to get it back to decent pasture. Um, and one solution they were thinking of was to make a burn pile on top of the already bare spot and then spread in the ash. Well, um, bind it up the nitrogen with kind of biochar, but that's a bit vague. Um, they have a three-acre pond with a bunch of small scrap trees they could get rid of. Um, well, if the trees are on the damn wall, you definitely should do that. But I wouldn't burn these piles. What we need to do is turn the problem into the solution. So what I'd do is get a chisel plow. You could use a yeoman's plow, but any kind of chisel plow. The chisel through those areas and deep rip with the chisels, not turning the soil over, but making rip lines. On contour, of course, is better. And then um, you would add compost extraction now it doesn't have to be compost tea it just has to be get some very high quality compost um and the 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 better the compost the better the job it's gonna it's gonna have because the high quality compost has very uh large diversity of of organisms and a very large number of organisms now you don't have to turn it into tea because the feed is going to be the dead um anaerobic organisms in your chiseled soil so what you do is you you just blow uh, air through the um, water um, that you're making the, the extraction with just like a tea but only for three to four hours of oxygenation you need enough air blowing through the water um, equal to the volume of water every minute so you've got a um, one cubic meter of, of, of water you need a cubic meter of air blowing through it every minute. Uh, one of your normal compost tea um, uh, manufacturers or, or, or compost tea service people will be able to do this for you easily. And you, you don't need a full tea. You just need an extraction. Blow the organisms into the water. Spray it onto the onto the rip lines, and um, 
you don't use a high pressure pump, use a, use a transfer pump. So you've got volume without pressure because you don't want to kill the organisms inside the pump while they're going through. But they've just been blown into the water and then you just spray it onto the ground. It'll soak into the rip lines and all the dead anaerobic anaer organisms in the rip lines, because they become, if you created an aerobic condition, they become the feed for the anaer dead anaerobes, become the feed for the active aerobes you put in and they'll breed like crazy in the soil now then you may depends how long you've had this damage or problem uh, you may have to rip it again depends on your compaction as well uh, you want to get down to 18 inches in the end so you might start at th you know three or six inches and then go down a foot and then go down to 18 inches so it might be you know you might do it two or three times and you're going to have to wait for the soil to be in the right condition, not too dry, not too wet, just at the right moisture content so you get the chisel chisel plough in and get a nice rip line. Um, after three applications, you'll find there are probably the more fertile spots on the whole farm. And there you go. The problem is the solution by turning things around from anaerobic to aerobic with a bit of mechanical assistance and patterning on contour. All right, guys, today my uh, segment comes from Josh. Josh sent me an email and it says, Question, am I oversimplifying to think that this pretends an ominous future with our inflationary economic system? And it details, our economy is based on a never-ending growth. Obviously, that is not possible, and there is no population explosion that will annihilate the globe. I believe this could be an episode of its own. If you care to share your thoughts, what do you think, Spirodamas, I, for one, be very curious to know uh, all that this will mean in light of both our economic system as well as the robots are coming future. Tomorrow, given automation, trends, and lack of jobs that will supersede this deflation, stagflation, inflation, all three. Worse, thanks for all you do in preparing us to face challenges such as these. And he sends me an article, to a link to an, a Wall Street Journal article, and this is the title of it. Elderly in the U.S. are projected to outnumber children for the first time. Census Bureau predicts milestone will be hit within 17 years. Uh, elderly defined as 65 and older. So there will be more people alive who are 65 and older in 17 years than there are people that are 17 and under. The first time in the history of the country. I, I, there's a lot of reasons this is bad. And, and I'm not going to read the article, you can read it yourself, but it also talks about the effects of immigration, and the only reason we will continue to have any population growth at all is due to immigration, which can also be good and or bad, depending on how we look at it. Let's talk about why it's just flat out bad. In our economic system, the majority of our elderly are dependent at least to some level on Social Security. Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. That is not a statement of conjecture, that is a statement of fact. If you look at what a Ponzi scheme is, then you understand that Social Security fits the definition of a Ponzi scheme perfectly. You require new money in sufficient quantity to pay off the debt to the first investors. That's the basics of a Ponzi scheme. Just because the government is running it and just because it is, quote-unquote, big giant air quotes, legal and backed by government with other giant air quotes, which means they will steal more money to cover the, the losses if they have to, does not change the fact that it's a Ponzi scheme. And it only works, it only works in a society with significant population growth and significant growth of the war workforce and significant growth in the average income within the workforce. 
That's the only way that it works. And the reason that's the case is there is no lockbox. In the old words of Al Gore all the way back from the, the presidential election between him and George Bush Jr., right? There's no lockbox. There never has been a lockbox. There's never going to be a lockbox. A lockbox is not a thing. When you pay money into Social Security and your employer matches it, that money goes in, it almost immediately goes out to pay somebody who's on Social Security now. Your money doesn't go into a government bond with interest gaining against it, which is the way they make it sound like it is. The money is spent. Every dollar in Social Security collected in 2018 will be spent in 2018 or within about the first month of 2019. It's gone. Get it? Gone. It's not there. I know this is hard to understand because they don't teach you this in school. Why the hell would they want you to know? It's gone. It went to your grandma. And I know you're so evil. You want the old people. Shut up. People like to shut up. Makes me think of that Jordan Peterson interview, right? So you're saying you want children. Shut up. I am not making a value judgment on this. It's pretty easy to make one, and that's why you get upset when you hear it, those of you that do. I am making a statement of fact. It's not what I want. Trust me, none of this is what I want. When you pay money into the Social Security system, it is spent almost immediately to pay Social Security benefits for other people. Again, statement of fact, not opinion. Which means that by the time you reach that age and get the money that you are, quote-unquote, entitled to because you, quote-unquote, invested in it, okay, and you waited your, quote, entire life, end quote, right, for this to be given back to you, right, and you are you are asking for what you are due. Again, leave the value judgment aside, unless there are sufficient new people in the workforce earning sufficiently high enough income paying sufficiently high enough of their own Social Security taxes to pay yours, your money is gone. Your money paid for your grandma. You're asking your grandchildren to pay for you. But I invested my money. I understand they stole your money. I am not, I'm not objecting to that at all. They stole your money and gave it to your grandma. They stole your grandma's money, okay, and they gave it to her mom and grandma. We've been doing this since the 1930s. This is a mandated, government-sanctioned Ponzi scheme. And the way they've made it work for longer than it theoretically ever should have is robust growth in population and robust growth in participation in the workforce, i.e. women entering the workforce in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in high numbers, which doubled the workforce. Why do you think they did it? To keep their little game going. It wasn't women's liberation. It was, hey, shit, we're screwed. Hey, fix this. I'm telling you, this is reality. For every woman that's happy about that, that loves having a career, there's a woman that would is like, if I could stay home and take care of my kids, I would. And that's what it should. It should be choice, one or the other. But no, we've created a system, and then we created single mother sainthood, which encouraged more people to go ahead and be single moms which is a brutal hard thing to be, but we've made it like it's a hero. It's a hero. They wear a cape, which is mandated that those people stay in the workforce. Then we take the guy and we put onerous amounts of spousal and child support upon him that mandates he stays in the workforce. It kills himself. And we've, we've created an artificial reality 
But it's only because we had the body count. It's only because we had the body count. You stop making babies in this situation, and you need to make a lot more babies than we're making, or have a lot more immigration than we have, and the system breaks. And it'll probably break about the time that most of the people in this audience are reaching 65 to 73, which will be your retirement ages. You want it to get worse? Okay, here's how it gets worse. You know that talk we had about local government and government and how much power government has and how our system of government has become what it has? Okay. When we start bringing in immigrants from people that do not share our value, from, from places that do not share the values that the average American has, and they become a weighted component in the electorate in this country, we'll push, we'll push into changes that are not good for this country. And I know that sounds anti-immigrant. And yet, I, again, I'm making a statement of fact. You bring a whole shitload of people in here who are from third world Islamic nations and believe in that version of Islam. Because there's plenty of people that don't, that are of the Muslim faith, that are not a threat to society. But you bring a shitload of them in the R, and they team up with the leftists that we have here, who, by the way, they'd like to kill, and the leftists are too stupid to understand it, And you end up with a real problem. You end up with a problem that when you try to solve it with immigration, you, you, you make it worse. This article says Americans should be grateful for our immigration. I think one of the, the classes of immigrant we really need to get off the back of. Now, I'm all for cutting off welfare to everybody, let alone immigrants, right? Um, but it is the Mexican-American immigrant. There, there is not a group of people that come to America that within a generation assimilate more to our way of life than, I, I guess maybe Canadians, because they're already so close. But, but the, the Hispanic immigrant tends to, within one generation, speak good English, have a good job, or be an entrepreneur. Now, I saw MS-13. Yes, I know. There's a segment of that group that are scumbags. And there's a segment of Catholic priests that molest children. There's a segment of every group of people that are shitbags. I understand that. When you make a generalization, there's always people that are on the outside of it. If you say the majority of a group that's 20 million people, 15 million people out of 20 million is a solid majority. 5 million is a bunch of people that are not part of that, that generalized group. But in general, Latin American immigrants are Catholic, value family, value hard work, respect the elderly, and have large families, and tend to stay together on average and have lower divorce rates than the average American does today. And you can say a lot of the same things for a lot of these people coming from some real hell holes. Oh my God, Jack agrees with Donald Trump. When he's right, I do. When he's right, I do. And if, if you're coming here and you believe that any religion should have the power of a theocracy in my country, I don't want you here. And the reason I don't want you here is a fundamental fact that nobody wants to acknowledge. Our founders were, this is not the first part, it's not the fact. It is a fact, though. Our founders were some pretty smart people. They set us up with a system of government that would take more than one generation to affect a large change in society. And they did that because they knew this would be a nation of immigrants. And what they wanted was people to come here and be here long enough 
that by the time their children had grown and earned citizenship and the right to vote, that they had had time to become part of what we are so they would think before they made change. And what has happened over time, as the government has grown, its power has grown, its scope has grown, and the rights of the people have been infringed upon, infringed upon, infringed upon, the duration of time necessary to make change has decreased. That's the fact that no one wants to talk about. And we're getting to a point now where when a single election cycle happens and one or two seats on the Supreme Court change, you can have things happen as quickly that used to take 40 or 50 years to happen, they can happen in a day. And it's a lot like your Roman dictators, your Roman emperors. Is the change for actual good? Or is it for not good? All depends on the emperor you get. All depends on the way the pendulum swings. And we are in real danger, those of us that are in our, our, our 30s and 40s and 50s, ending up retired in a country we don't recognize telling old stories, if we're lucky, about a society that our, our, our grandchildren or great-grandchildren will not even be able to comprehend. Because you can't pour in a group of people that do not share the values of the society that they're coming into and have them out-reproduce. I know some people get very upset about this. this is, again, this is the truth. And have them out-reproduce the native population two to three to four times over. And in a generation or two, when all of their children and grandchildren were born here and under our system of government are recognized as citizens, if they have not taken on our culture and values, they will shift it away from there. Period. And that's not anti-immigrant. That's anti-stupidity in our policy because our, here's our other big problem. One of the reasons that traditionally immigrants, even if they've made their own little little towns, Chinatowns and little Italy's or whatever when they first got here, within a generation became part, instead of being vulcanized on, actually melted into the melting pot, is because our system of values in general, despite its flaws, was solid, was true, was valued by our people, And even where we were wrong, we were legitimately trying to do better. And when you see a people like that, you want to be part of it. Now, we hate each other, we detest each other, people think it actually makes sense to protest a president they see as a misogynist by wearing a pink pussy hat and marking, marching through the street. People cuss each other out because they disagree over things. Family members disown other family members because of whom they voted for. So we don't get to just pass the buck to the immigrant that's coming in now. We have to say to ourselves, what is our message to them that makes them want to share our values? How welcome do they feel? And all of this is coming together at one of the greatest times of shift in society. Well, we're headed for a world with universal basic income. We really are. And again, I, I get in trouble all the time. Even people that like me sometimes don't understand what I'm saying when I say, here's what's really going on here. Well, you want that to happen. No, I am the damn weatherman. The weatherman does not go, gee, I hope a tornado smashes into Tom's house. I am for, I am pro-tornado. 
He doesn't go, I am anti-tornado. I don't want the tornado to, even though he doesn't really want, Tommy doesn't want the tornado to smash your house. He doesn't think that if he doesn't want it to smash into your house, or he tells you that it won't smash into your house, or he tells you if you vote against the tornado, it won't come, he doesn't think any of those things mitigate the potential for the tornado to smash into your house. So you know what he does. Hey, there's a system of rotation here. Tom, you live over here. Get to your safe space, dude. Because it's I don't know if it's going to hit you, but it's going to hit somebody, and it's coming that way. That's what I'm saying in all of this. We're headed for multiple shit storms converging at the same time. And we have the potential for such enormous growth and such enormous opportunity. And we have the potential in this conglomeration of shit storms to make 1984 the novel look like a day in freaking Disneyland. And it's up to us. It's up to us. Realizing the problem is that we have a large number of people that are being brought into this country, given a handout, empowered, protected even when they commit criminal activity. That doesn't mean, oh, well, we shouldn't have anybody come here. No, I mean, so we need to freaking change the way we handle it and what's going on. And there's no easy one answer. It's like all these problems, none of them have a single easy answer. The TV tells you that. If we were in charge, it'd be okay. If they were, and the other side says, if we were in charge, it'd be okay. They're both full of shit. Most of them don't know what to do about this. This demographic bomb, and that's what it really is, a demographic bomb, this, this slowing to leveling of population growth with an aging population dependent on the working population is a system that was created about, what, 85 years ago, 90 years ago now. And it's like somebody set the building on fire, and now you're in the building, and you just finally smell smoke, but you're on the 12th floor, and they set the fire on the first floor. There might be a way to save the building, but you better accept the fact that maybe there isn't. And you might start thinking about how to get the hell out of the building. And we do that through preparedness, through planning, through paying attention, through situational awareness, to focusing on our circle of influence versus our circle of concern by not panicking. In spite of the fact some of this sounds pretty dire, doesn't it? Because there's always the potential for adaptation. And we need to be prepared, we need to pay attention, but we do not need to close our eyes like an ostrich and stick our head in the sand. I know I've upset some of you today. I'm sorry. But again, I'm the weatherman. I'm the weatherman. I'm telling you that this system and this system, when they combine, are going to make a really bad hailstorm, and it might damage your crop of corn. Doesn't mean I want it to. Doesn't mean I'm pro-hailstorm. Doesn't mean I'm anti-corn. Just means I accept reality and what reality means. I think that's something more of us need to do in this country. With that, so with that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to tell you uh, another way you can help support this show, as always, is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. And I have an item of the day today for you that you may or may not want to buy through tspaz. You may want to prefer to buy it locally. It's a product I've talked about an awful lot, but I've never actually done a review of it for tspaz, and it's Garrett Juice. Garrett Juice made by uh, Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor, a local radio personality who I do believe has his show syndicated across the United States. Uh, he has a podcast you can listen to. Really great guy. I'd say he's probably done more for organic gardening than any other single individual 
in the last 30 years. And I know some people may disagree with me on that, but I think overall, the overall impact, uh, it, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to argue with. And he has this product, again, called Garrett Juice. For years, he just told people how to make it. And I'll tell you straight up front, you don't have to buy it. You can make it. Uh, the, the ingredients and exactly how to make it are on his website. He sells it in a one-gallon concentrate, and that one gallon will make 64 gallons of sprayable or drenchable um, Garrett Juice uh, appliable fertilizer. And there's, there's three different versions of it. There's the basic Garrett juice. And the basic Garrett juice is made up of uh, apple cider vinegar, compost tea, molasses, and liquid seaweed. The Garrett juice plus gets a nitrogen kick because in addition to those things, it gets liquid fish emulsion. And the Garrett juice pro has everything I just said, plus it's inoculated with soil organisms and mycorrhizal fungi. I usually buy the Pro version online when I want that because I can't get it in my local stores. I've never seen the Pro. I've, I see the Plus all the time. Almost no one carries the, 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 the base stuff anymore because it doesn't cost much less than the Plus. The Plus has a little bit more nitrogen in it. Um, I use this in all of my fertility. I actually have a link today to my full four-part utility program, the four products that are in there that are made up of Garrett Juice, Dr. Earth Premium Gold Fertilizer, Endomycorrhizal Fungi from SAT Inc., and GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp. Notice something about that. Four products, four companies, zero brand loyalty. Four products that work the best. I think if you try a regime based on these four things and you're gardening this year, it will flat blow you away. I know the people that have done it in the past, since I've been recommending it over the years, have always told me, I, I, I cannot believe the difference. Um, and this is a good time to get on that, that beginning that regime. I use this stuff. I have a little uh, half-gallon sprayer, and I'll, I'll put just a tablespoon of Garrett juice in that and fill that up with water, and I spray my plants a couple times a week with it. This time of year when they're just getting started off the ground, the soil's cold, etc. Then later in the season as it's bigger and I've got a lot more to do, I'll fill up my one-gallon sprayer. I spray it about once every three weeks to once a month. When my trees are doing what they're doing right now, I get my backpack sprayer out. I use Garrett juice. I use garlic pepper tea that I also have a link to in the show notes today. It's part of my, my program for their fertility and for pest control. And I do that. Here's another thing you can do with Garrett juice. We, I, I've always recommended a product called Antifuego from a company called Gardens Alive. It is for killing fire ants. They don't ship it anymore. Why? The same reason that Garrett juice costs more when you buy it by mail than in your local store. It's a gallon of liquid. It's a pain in the ass to ship. But if you use two ounces of Garrett juice and two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of water, you just made your own antifuego, and you can drench your fire ant mounds with that and kill them. Now, here's the thing. Like I said, you can make it yourself, but I would also advise you to check your local stores. Uh, they say free shipping on a lot of stuff on Amazon. You know it's built into the price. Shipping a one-gallon jug of liquid causes some additional shipping costs. So if you can find it locally, buy it locally, get the other stuff through T-SPAS. If you can't get it locally, you know, get it through T-SPAS or make it yourself. Again, I buy the Pro with the, the, the beneficial microorganisms in it online because I can never find it locally, which is crazy to me because Garrett's right over in freaking Dallas. But So it's, it's up to you. But this is my regime that I follow. And again, I think if you try it, the soil inoculation, 
the Dr. Earth uh, Premium Gold Fertilizer. I switched to the solid for that because it, it goes right along with using the Garrett in the liquid format, the GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp Fertilizer. And I'll add a little bit of liquid kelp right in with the Garrett juice sprays and right in with the Garrett juice drenches. So it's all in one thing. It's, it's very, very easy to do. And I really recommend it. Again, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to today's song of the day, wrapping up Queen Week. And uh, this is a song that's inspirational and sad. Uh, this is a song called The Show Must Go On. It was on the Innuendo album. We listened to the, the title track, Innuendo, yesterday, released in 1991. Guitarist Brian May wrote this while lead singer Freddie Mercury was dying of AIDS. It was Mercury's last official album with Queen, and when it was released, very few people knew he had the disease. The lyrics are about the need to press on and make the most out of life while you can still enjoy it. It is inevitably a comment on Mercury's worsening condition and his attitude towards life. Brian May noted his incredible courage in Days of Our Lives documentary. Quote, he never moaned. He never said my life is shit. This is terrible. I hate it. End quote, said May. Quote, he had an incredible strength and peace. End quote. The song's placing as the final track on Innuendo is notable, and it is likely that the band thought this might be the last album Mercury would be healthy enough to perform on before his death. In the sessions, he made enough recordings to provide the band with material to release a posthumous 1995 album called Made in Heaven. Um, may we all face the end of our lives with the same attitude. I can only imagine being young enough to still have a lot of life ahead of you. Having such an incredible talent and so many things left to say and do, and being faced with the inevitability of your own death coming much earlier than you ever thought it would. I, I hope that if I ever have that in front of me, and I hope it's something that will pass from me and I don't have to go through it. I hope to die a very old man watching my great-grandchildren play under trees that I planted with the taste of good beverage on my lips. That's that's how I hope to go. But if that is not what fate has in store for me, may that I have the courage to faith life, face the end of my life with not moaning and never feeling that it's unfair to me and having an incredible strength and an incredible peace. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Fairy tales of yesterday will grow but never die.